Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. It's the World Soccer Talk podcast, the only podcast that focuses on watching soccer on TV, online and apps. In episode 101, we discuss an interview with Univision to discuss their Champions League and Liga MX coverage. Fox prepares to dumb down the coverage of soccer with Saturday's MLS Cup final. Telemundo picks up the rights to Sunday's River Boca game. And we have a bunch of letters from you listeners in our mailbag section. My name is Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kartik Krishnaya. Kartik, uh, it's an unusually cool and, and chilly uh, Florida morning here on Thursday as we're recording this. And it's been, in some ways, a, a, a chilly week for U.S. soccer and the U.S. Soccer Federation with the appointment of uh, Greg Berhalter as the, the new coach. What's your take on it and, and what's your take on the process and uh, any... Um, conflict of interest well the the big uh question mark is about the process because we had a situation where the top uh american coaches or the the, the guys widely acknowledged as the top american coaches uh peter vermese and uh jesse marsh were not granted uh formal interviews uh, we had a situation where the top foreign coach in major league soccer Tata Martino was not granted a formal interview. We had a situation where the uh, former coach of the Mexican national team, who has spent much of his professional life in the United States, including in Major League Soccer, Juan Carlos Osorio, seemed like a natural fit, was not granted an interview. Went on to coach Paraguay, took that job. So there were a lot of question marks asked about this process. I know there were people out there who had the dream of, oh, let's get Arsene Wenger or let's get – Let's get some uh, available sexy name like that, big-time coach. Lopetegui, obviously, Grant Wall from uh, SI reported, uh, had uh, contacted the U.S. Soccer Federation. My understanding is that um, the intermediary in that, uh, in that uh, situation was Raul, uh, former great Real Madrid and, and Span- Spanish national team player uh, that contacted the uh, uh, U.S. Soccer Federation on behalf of Lopetegui, and they weren't interested. But I, my beef is that they didn't even interview the top American candidates, uh, the guys that I think uh, have stood out in Major League Soccer the last few years, particularly Jesse Marsh, uh, who is now an assistant at Red Bull Leipzig, uh, at RB Leipzig in the Bundesliga, but spent several years m- managing uh, New York Red Bulls and before that managing Montreal, uh, was a very, very good player, very heady player, has a specific style attached to him, style of football. Uh, and you've seen the Red Bulls develop players very quickly. And same thing with Peter Vermees, uh, most successful American coach in MLS the last decade, not named uh, Bruce Arena, has a specific style play, passing uh, style play uh, associated with sporting Kansas City. So why did this happen, Chris? Well, the speculation is because Jay Burhalter, the brother of Greg Burhalter, is the chief operating officer of U.S. soccer and is based on my experiences and my reporting the last three years specifically, uh, the most powerful guy in that building beside Dan Flynn, besides Dan Flynn, who's on his way out retiring. So mm-hmm. 
A lot of questions out there. Um, I feel bad in a way for Greg Berhalter. I think he's a decent coach. He's an American who has coached abroad. He coached in Sweden for uh, two and a half seasons. He is an American that spent the vast majority of his playing career in Europe, uh, generally with uh, in second-tier leagues like the Eredivisie or in uh, a second division like he was in Bundesliga 2 for a few years. I watched him at 1860 Munich. I thought he was still pretty decent at that age in, in his uh, early to mid-30s at the time. But um, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him from the get-go because of obviously the U.S. is in a bad place, worst place the U.S. has been in 30 years uh, in terms of its national team, but more so because of this uh, assumption by some of nepotism, the bad appearance, the process not being transparent, and the process, quite frankly, uh, Chris, not uh, reaching out to some of the um, – most logical names. Again, I know a lot of people are complaining, oh, we could have gotten Arsene Wenger. We could have gotten Lopetegui. We could have gotten uh, uh, Jose Peckerman, just uh, residing in Colombia. We could have gotten him. We could have gotten Marcelo Lippi, whoever. Uh, I'm more focused on the fact that we didn't even interview the top uh, domestic candidates. That, that, to me is, that to me is more galling than anything. The, the, the laughable thing about all of this is that Carlos Cordero in the press conference this week said that uh, they had a consideration list of, I think, 32 or 33 play, uh, managers that they considered, uh, which, which is fine. You, you and I could put together a list of, you mean, 50 managers that would be, <laughs> a, 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 should be considered for this job. But the, the reality is, is that, uh, you mean, they, they've interviewed, what, one um, maybe two, but but the, the, they were dead set on getting Berhalter. From my perspective, I mean Berhalter's stepping into a very difficult position. Um, I'm going to give him, you mean, the support and, and go in there with an open mind and hope he does well. But it's a very difficult position in terms of the players at his disposal. Uh, it's definitely a transition phase. There aren't a lot of you mean American stars uh, available to him, and the ones that are stars are aging such as tim howard or michael bradley and you mean the kind of at, at their end of their their kind of playing uh, careers so yeah to me it's going to be interesting to one to watch my hot take on this kartik is that i think that um that, and this just might be just me but it looks like the ussf is almost trying to copy england and, and the english uh, uh, football association when they hired jürgen klinsmann that was at a time where England had gone out to get Fabio Capello, uh, and, and you know, Capello was doing pretty well, and actually he was starting to t- turn that team around a little bit. Um, and at the same time now, I think in some ways, it's like they're looking at, say, Gareth Southgate and going like, hey, yeah, why can't we get somebody that's, you mean, kind of one of these managers that's, uh, or one of these coaches that is not one of the big names. Let's go for somebody that knows the American system, knows the American players better, uh, and is going to fit, fit in with the system. That, that's my take on it, is that they're kind of um, looking to the FA for some, some guidance and think, yeah, why, why should we go for big names? Let's go for somebody that actually knows knows the players really, really well. But uh, a difficult position to step into, and it's going to be an interesting one to watch. And I think the first friendly is against Panama in January, um, and we'll take it from there. Copying England is the vogue thing right now in the U.S. Uh, USL, uh, which is the uh, uh, the system that covers the uh, professional leagues immediately under Major League Soccer, for those that aren't familiar with it, has now rebranded all of their competitions on English lines. So their second division is called the USL Championship. Their third division is now called USL League One. And their fourth division is now called USL League Two. Uh, which I, mean, I guess it makes it very uh, familiar for those of us who follow English football like you and me. But I think for the average American fan, they're like, well, what is this? Right. Yeah, same thing with the NASL. I mean, NSL a couple of years ago had the uh, the rebranded 
what the, one of the championships as the championship. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's it's a very familiar, yeah, but in, in, in very kind of copycat uh, type of uh, procedures there. So, so Kartik, from this past week, um, I didn't catch as much football as I normally do just because uh, of kids' uh, soccer games in the weekends. Um, but the standout game for me, I didn't catch it live, but I saw the highlights and uh, it seemed to be Arsenal against Spurs. This seemed to be one of the, the games of the weekend, if not one of the games of the season. Uh, did you get a chance to catch this or, or, or was there another game that you thought was uh, the best one? Well, I, that and the uh, Roma uh, Inter game, which was on ESPN2, uh, or excuse me, ESPN News or ESPN, I don't know, my DVR taped it. <laughs> but I thought that was actually a very good match, and it was on a, one of the ESPN networks. That and then obviously the Spurs-Arsenal uh, game was very entertaining, although uh, you have to ask questions about uh, Spurs' capitulation in that uh, in that setting. That's not something we've seen from them against Arsenal since that five five two match uh, several years ago. Right? No, I'm trying to remember. There was a there was a match where they capitulated like this, but it, it was it was certainly um, from an Arsenal perspective a very very good second half to watch, and um, it begs a lot of questions about Metsit Ozil, who I thought had been having a pretty pretty good season. Uh, compared to his recent campaigns uh, up until a few weeks ago. And what happens to Arsenal when Aaron Ramsey departs, which seems to be inevitable at this point, and goes to Juventus or Bayern or wherever, he, wherever he's headed. Uh, because uh, I, I don't know um, if Arsenal quite put up that, that display, if, if uh, Emery doesn't make the two very aggressive changes at halftime. One, one last point on this. Uh, this is not media or TV related, but um, and I didn't hear the point necessarily made in this way on NBC. Uh, Kyle Martino, or, or sorry, no, the Robbies gave a lot of credit to, to Emery for making the two halftime changes. I will point out as someone who I'm not an Arsenal fan, but I've obviously watched a ton of Arsenal the last uh, uh, decade or more, or two decades. Arsene Wenger was very reluctant to make these sorts of changes in a match when he's only down 2-1 at halftime. Wenger's changes often would come in the 65th or 70th minute. He would wait till minute 60 to see how things were playing out, then make changes, and they would sometimes not impact the game, or he'd throw Giroud on late more recently in recent years, and he'd get an equalizer but not have time for a winner, right? Um, Emery making these changes early, uh, making them at halftime, making two changes at halftime, rolling the dice in a derby made all the difference. So... To this point, um, until whatever the date of that match was, December 2nd, I was reluctant to say, hey, there's a huge change in Arsenal because, one, out of respect for Wenger, and two, knowing that Arsenal usually has some sort of midseason swoon at some point, um, or they either start poorly or they have, they, they, they have a poor December to February stretch. We've seen that time and again under Wenger. Uh, with this, with largely this group of players. But uh, the combination of that... That particular in-game management and the continued brilliance of Torreira, who is a completely different sort of player than what we've seen uh, at Arsenal in the last decade, uh, since uh, Gilberto Silva, if not uh, going even further back than that, uh, I think means that this is a different Arsenal. And uh, I, I, I was disappointed I didn't hear that specific point made. Normally, the NBC pundits are all over it. Uh, but the contrast with Wenger, to me, was pretty clear in the second half of this game. And that, and that was the thing, too, about um, Arsenal in the second half against Man United uh, midweek, too, in terms of very positive uh, substitutions, Lacazette coming on, 
and, and really that second half, it was it was Arsenal that was in the ascendancy. It looked like they were going to win it at the yeah. end. Uh, ended up being the two-two tie. Uh, just an example though of a game with so many defensive blunders. Um, actually, even even just during the Spurs game too, defensive blunders. And to me, that that's really the weakness of the Premier League when it, when you see those teams competing in the Champions League is that uh, defensively they're poor. Uh, even scoring wise, they're fine, but that that's going to be that's going to undermine the 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 potential of any major Premier League team going through into kind of you know the final stages or or the final uh, of the Champions League this season. But uh, yeah, all all in all, it was um, Liverpool Everton too. I mean, a good game, just a crazy ending to the match. Uh, I thought at least from this past week, a good week for the Premier League, other than the, those defensive blunders. But overall. Uh, very entertaining and lots of goals. Now, Kartik, you caught this, and I, I missed it because I was kind of—I've been bouncing around watching different games, watching the Bundesliga, watching Championship, uh, and then I saw a couple of clips of this. But talk to me and talk to the listeners about uh, Sky Sports and now the synergy with NBC Sports and what you've seen so far and, and what's your take on it. Yeah, I've seen more uh, Sky post-match interviews of. But now this weekend, uh, prior to this weekend, this weekend, and, and I'll admit I was in a bit of a rotten mood after the uh, uh, after the Origi goal. Although credit to Origi for running out that play, uh, just a, a, a terrible mistake by Pickford that uh, we certainly hope uh, he doesn't make again. I, I mean, England keepers set to make those sorts of errors, so it's just continuing a long line of uh, that sort of thing. But so I was in kind of a rotten mood after that match. But um, Gary Neville. Uh, joined Rebecca Lowe. Uh, you had uh, you have access to the whole kind of Sky database of um, of interviews and clips, and even some analysis from Sky pundits now being worked into NBC's pregame and postmatch coverage um, because of the uh, Comcast uh, takeover of Sky in the UK. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember which match it was. Maybe it was Gary Neville. I actually yeah. holding an NBC it was mic. Like Arsenal, uh, Arsenal Spurs match, the post-match. Arsenal Spurs match, yeah. yeah. Holding an NBC mic, which we have not seen before. So um, that is something that Fox never really took full advantage of when they had the pr- Premier League rights and they had the uh, – um, the 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 uh, access to Sky they they would bring Jeff Shreves on actually they would bring Jeff Shreves on for their own coverage of Champions League because right. uh, Sky didn't have that but they didn't really use the Sky um, the, the the assets Sky have for the for their Premier League coverage and I think this is also good for those of you in the UK because I've heard a lot of people in the business in the UK rave about NBC's coverage and say well we wish we had some of that here I tend to be and I think you're the same way Chris you and I tend to say hey we wish we had some of Sky's coverage and BT's coverage here in the States um, and BT's out of this equation but I mentioned them because they do some good things as well um, I think what we're going to see is more synergies we're going to see more uh, of, of that Sky type coverage on NBC and more of that NBC type coverage on Sky and I think for that everyone wins uh, really exciting and and I uh, want to see how much more uh, this is rolled out in the coming weeks they haven't made an announcement about it or anything but you just notice it in the coverage It'll be interesting to see where they go with this, though, too, Carter, because in some ways they want to kind of keep that NBC brand. 
uh, and kind of still showcase their, their, the talent that they, they've always had. But this is a great way to accentuate, to enhance the coverage that they already have. I mean, it's already the gold standard for soccer coverage in the U.S. And having some opportunities to bring in, say, say uh, Gary Neville or Jamie Carragher or some of the other Sky Sports presenters uh, and pundits definitely will, will help. But it'll be interesting to see how much of that they do. I mean, this is a great opportunity. I mean, Monday Night Football, which is the really the you mean the the, the dominance you mean the number one analysis uh, soccer show in English uh, language speaking the, the world really in terms of the high level of analysis will we see clips of that bits and pieces of that maybe on the Monday um, that would be fantastic to, to see and we know that um, the head of NBC Sports in terms of the soccer p- uh, production last season went out to Sky Sports and spent some time with them, sat in on their Monday Night Football uh, set on Sky Sports to, to kind of see how they did things. So, and, and vice versa, like you said to Kartik, I mean, the, the analysis by NBC Sports and the coverage that they do, that could actually help uh, Sky Sports too, because Sky Sports isn't perfect by any means. I mean, some of their coverage is pretty poor, but uh, most of it is good when it comes to the Premier League. But yeah, interesting times there to see how that develops. And uh, certainly one that I think would encourage myself and probably a lot of other listeners to tune in maybe a little bit er- earlier for some of these games and, and to kind of keep on watching the post-match because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who they're going to pull in. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, one quick question about the coverage uh, on NBC this week. I didn't hear any, and I'll admit I was at at, at, at the office watching the end of this match, but um, any coverage of Lacazette punches the ball out of uh, David De Gea's uh, arms and scores a goal, and it's obviously uh, called back. But I, if he didn't foul De Gea and he used his foot, um, what was what was the call? Because I didn't hear any analysis. I taped the, the NBC post-match show and didn't hear an al- any analysis of that. Did they talk about that in-game? Because I'm, I'm curious about that rule and maybe why it wasn't talked about. Yeah, good question. To be honest with you, I'm not sure because actually as I was doing the call, I, I, as, as I was watching the game, I got a phone call from Sports Illustrated to do an interview. And then post-match, I think I had a, I had a run to pick up my kids from school or something like that. So, so that, that's the thing. I, I missed it. So um, I'd be surprised if they mentioned it or covered it. Uh, just because there's so much, especially on Wednesday, there was so many, about six games, and I probably most of the coverage post-match uh, was well, focused Well, post-match, they didn't cover it. They didn't Okay, they didn't so during the, game, during the game, I'm not sure, because I, yeah. I, I had it on mute for a little bit of the time while I took the call. It was a bizarre sequence. I don't know if you saw it, but what happened is De Gea, uh, he didn't put the ball down, but he held the ball out and was clearly not paying attention. Lacazette just punched it out with his foot and yep. put it in the back of the net. And I think this might have been in stoppage time or around the 90th minute. Yeah, I, I remember seeing it because I remember I was on the phone. I remember seeing it and going like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? But then I, I didn't hear the commentary or the analysis to see uh, what their take was on that. Because my take is that a keeper should not always be protected. I mean, if a keeper is not paying attention and uh, Lacazette didn't you know, use his body to push uh, uh, De Gea to drop the ball, but in fact just kind of play, you know, used his foot, I don't know what's wrong with that, but yeah. whatever. Yeah, we've seen that before too, where like there's been a, a, a defender or a, an attacker behind the goalkeeper, kind of by the goalpost, and the goalkeeper doesn't know he's, just, he's getting ready to do a, you mean to punt the ball out, and yeah. doesn't doesn't realize there's an actual player behind him, and the player runs up, sneaks around the corner, and uh, knocks the ball away and, and scores. I, that was I can't remember which game it was, but it was several years ago. But um, 
Yeah, that, that one's always... always... Fernando Torres against Sunderland, I remember. Ah, that. see? I knew you would know Kartik. <laughs> and I think the keeper was Mignolet, if I'm not mistaken. Probably, <laughs> he yeah. going to Liverpool. And maybe it was another keeper, but it was definitely uh, Fernando Torres. I remember but I remember. Right. It might have been that goalkeeper that was... Um, oh, gosh, the Manchester City keeper that went to City. The tall bloke from... Um, was he from Romania? or no? Oh, who passed away now from Hungary, Martin Fulop. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, it might have been him. All right, Kartik, so uh, anything else that stood out before we move on from this past week? Anything else worth mentioning? Yeah, I just thought the coverage of the MLS playoffs was um, was decent uh, from Fox uh, in the Atlanta match, and then ESPN uh, did a good job of, of capturing the um, rowdy behavior from from the fans in Kansas City and, and some of the, uh, the issues there um, with uh, Adrian Healy and Taylor Twelman and Seb Salazar covering that match, uh, Kansas City-Portland. So I thought that was pretty good. And then I think uh, uh, we, we also saw uh, a ton of ads for DAZN again this weekend, whether it was uh, on NBC's Premier League coverage where they're sponsoring um, part of the uh, – uh, they're sponsoring the scorebook at times. I saw it on a lot of college football coverage and college basketball coverage over the weekend. Uh, we saw it on TNT last week. I saw it on CNN the one place I have not seen it is ESPN or ABC. So it seems like um, I mean, you could read into that what you want about John Skipper. But I think it seems like every other possible place they could pick up, uh, uh, pick up recognition and pick up potential subscribers, DAZN is advertising. Whether it, uh, any other sporting property on any network that's not owned by Disney. And that, a, that's pretty it is very aggressive. It's a great commercial too. Uh although it's I mean, for our audience there's very little interest. I mean, if you're into boxing or if you're into MMA or UFC, whatever whichever one they they also have, I think maybe MMA maybe. If you're into those sports, yeah. I mean it's a 30, 30 day trial, this looks great. But if you're a soccer fan, I mean I think they have I think they have the J League and I think they have uh one of the, the other league. one of the other Asian leagues too. So for us, for the, the vast majority, for the 99.9% of soccer fans, uh, other than the ones that are interested in boxing, there's, there's no interest. But at least they're putting themselves on the map. At least they're putting themselves in terms of um, people knowing um, the name, knowing how to pronounce it, knowing what it is, and getting ready for the next tidal wave, which, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, we know that they're aggressively trying to get some soccer TV rights from, from these other companies and say, hey, let's take this off your hands. We'll pay you I mean, a large amount of money to just get the rights to, to have those on, on our streaming platform. So we shall have to wait and see on that one, Kartik. All right, Kartik, let's move on to uh, TV streaming news. Yeah, so uh, Fox is taking a pass on this weekend's historic uh, Boca uh, River, or actually River Boca, right? It's technically the River Home Leg. River Boca, uh, second leg of the Copa Libertadores, which will be played at the Bernabeu. Uh, Telemundo will broadcast it instead, which I think is probably good news for most of the U.S. audience in, in terms of its accessibility. Well, uh, but well, this one, this one's confusing though, Carter, because actually, what it is is that so Telemundo announced that they were going to cover Sunday's game. Uh, I followed up to to find out, okay, is this exclusive rights? And they said no. So what's happening is actually Fox Deportes will, will still carry the game, uh, but Telemundo's carrying it too, which is bizarre because usually if you're a Spanish-language broadcaster, you have the full rights to that game. I mean, you want to make sure that you're the, the go-to place for it. Uh, so both Fox Deportes and Telemundo, as well as uh, Fanat- uh, Fanatis 
And I think Fox Soccer Match Pass will all have the game in Spanish. Also, NBCSports.com will have the game too, um, a live broadcast of the game in Spanish. So it's all Spanish all the time and nothing available in English. We know that Fox Sports has the rights to the game in English, but for whatever reason, they're deciding not to broadcast it, which is very bizarre. Yeah, and, and obviously uh, they're going to split their uh, – they're going to have some of their team in Madrid, some of their team uh, at Telemundo's uh, HQ in Miami. Uh, at, uh, at, I think they'll probably knock it out of the park for the coverage of this match. Uh, uh, there is still a lot of controversy. I, I mean, I, I work and talk amongst um, Argentine football fans all the time. There is still a lot of controversy about this match. And uh, I think just a sense of disappointment that this is what it's come to. But the match is going to happen. Uh, South America, uh, come the ball, has to send someone to the Club World Cup. So um, enjoy it. It should be a, a great, great uh, display of football uh, in spite of all the problems we've had. It has been, uh, Chris, I should point out, a month since the first leg or almost a yeah. month. It will be a month. At the time of uh, the match. Yeah, it's been crazy. It, it, and, and that's the thing, too. I think Telemundo has the rights to the FIFA Club World Cup. So from Telemundo's p- uh, perspective, having this game on their network uh, and, and you know, bragging about, okay, whoever wins this game, you can watch them play uh, on Telemundo. Uh, I think that, that's a smart move in terms of just getting people ready for that tournament and making sure people, people, everyone knows that uh, you can watch it on Telemundo. And given Real Madrid's struggles, this is a real opportunity for Boca or River to win the Club World Cup. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be entertaining, that's for sure. So something we predicted a few weeks ago, talking about the whole Girona-Barcelona game and whether it was going to be played in, in January in the United States. And we predicted that it was probably going to go to the courts or probably going to, going to go to uh, lawsuits. And we can report now that La Liga has filed a lawsuit against the F- Spanish Federation over the match, um, the Spanish League has taken legal action against the country's football federation in an effort to get approval for a regular season match in the U.S., uh, reports ESPN. A Madrid commercial court said uh, last Thursday the league filed a lawsuit accusing the Spanish Football Federation of unfair comp- competition. The court said a decision is, is expected in two weeks in time for the planned January match between Barcelona and Girona in Miami. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with this one, Kartik. Uh, even if uh, La Liga wins this case, that doesn't mean the game's going to be played, but it moves it to the next stage uh, of I mean, probably trying to get approvals from you mean, UEFA, CONCACAF, USSF, still a long list and uh, I mean, many, many obstacles to, 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 to get past, but this is the first one. It'll be interesting to see what happens here. Yeah, and obviously things have to happen pretty quickly. Uh, for this to uh, to take place, or at least this match. Um, moving on, uh, Sling TV has integrated BN uh, Sports Connect into the app, which I think is great news for for all Sling TV users and uh, gives you the ac- access to many more broadcasts, many more games than you just get naturally with having BN and BN in Espanol. And the way that w- this works is that, uh, so if you are a Sling Orange or a Sling Blue customer, a subscriber, uh, you just have to subscribe to either the um, Best of Spanish TV package uh, or the uh, Sling International package, also known as World Sports, uh, or you can subscribe to Sling Latino. So there's a bunch of different ways, but by a- one of those options, you can then get uh, access to BN Sports Connect, which is integrated directly into the app, and you can watch a ton of more La Liga games, Liga and games, uh, Turkish Super League, etc. So uh, good news there for Sling TV subscribers. 
Moving on, uh, C- C- Cutter uh, says that the World Cup games in 2022... Uh, the times that they could kick off. So this hasn't been approved yet. But the kickoff times, if approved, um, on a day, it, during the World Cup when there's four games on a day, the times would be proposed 5 a.m. Eastern time. All these times are Eastern. So 5 a.m., 8 a.m., 11 a.m., uh, and 2 p.m. And for those uh, days where there's, there's three games on, on a day rather than four, it would be 8, 11 uh, a.m. and then 2 p.m. Eastern Kartik, that's some rough going for the West Coast, um, some rough going again for Fox Sports in terms of trying to get some TV ratings. Um, a lot of it depends on the U.S. men's national team. But again, these games are during office hours. This is going to be a really difficult World Cup to, to generate some big numbers. Yeah, uh, although, uh, again, it's only an hour earlier than Russia. So we had a a day with four games in Russia. Australia, France kicked off at 6 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, That was in the first weekend of the competition. So this would just be an hour earlier. 9 a.m. was typically uh, there were kickoffs then. So this would be an hour earlier. Um, So it's going to be rough going. And uh, perhaps this is the justification FIFA gives for rolling over Fox and Telemundo for another cycle. Uh, when we press them on that, right? Uh, when, we, when we press the, the issue of why, why was there a no-bid contract for 2026, essentially? Um, and the start times were not ideal for the U.S. audience. I guess the real justification has been moving this to the winter, but uh, the start times also not ideal for Fox or Telemundo. Yeah, November and December. So it's going to be some rough going, I think, uh, overall. Uh, Kartik, just a couple more news items to go. Yeah, so there's been a lot of talk about this the last 48 hours. Fox Sports has introduced corner flag cams for Saturday's MLS Cup final between Atlanta and Portland, uh, which is on in primetime on Big Fox. Uh, This is, um, quite frankly, something I never thought of. And it's not something that I think necessarily um, (laughs) soccer fans want to see. I I, I don't know. Maybe. You do let us know. It, 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 it came as quite a quite a shock to me. This is just more kind of Americanization or, or uh, over over broadcastization of, of of a football match. It's just a yeah. To me, it's a gimmick. It's just a way of uh, what what can we? If Fox goes to their production team or their tech team and says, "Okay, what can we do uh, to kind of uh, up the level to get something newsworthy? So do something different." I know. Let's do a, a corner flag cam. Which, which I, I don't to me like I, I don't think anyone has ever said like hey I wish there was a, a cam right by the corner flag so we can see what what's happening near the corner flag. Um, to me, it's just uh, I mean in the past ESPN has done the the goal cams, which that makes more sense in terms of seeing where the ball's dropping. I mean that's that's where the action is. Corner flags not so much, but um, yeah, to I, me it's just a gimmick. I think one of the one of the things that that I think we don't get on TV that you get uh, uh, live uh, at, at a football match. And maybe this is uh, something that's going to come up in our listener mailbag because of uh, my, my, uh, my desire to see a lot of local football in person um, is what happens off the ball and the kind of player movement that I think a lot of times isn't picked up on TV and people who just watch soccer on television don't appreciate um, 
the 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 movement and the the, the ability to find space certain players have because it's not always on the television camera. Now, uh, if you have additional uh, cams and cameras that pick that up, which pick up a guy who's a deep lying midfielder, his run into the area when he's pl- he's behind the action and the ball is in the final third, I'd love to see a camera that picks that up. Uh, but no one has invented that. That's very difficult to do. It's difficult to splice into the coverage. So they come up with these gimmicks, which I think are rather useless, uh, honestly. Yeah, and and to me, I mean, it's um, I mean, I mean, a lot of these games will have anywhere from like say twenty to twenty-five cameras anyway. So if there's an off-the-field incident, something happens, which we've seen in, in Premier League matches or La Liga matches. I mean, kind of, you'll go back to the replay and then off, off the off camera, or even NBC has gone back uh, and kind of analyzed the tapes to try and find out exactly what happened, and you see some different angles. Um, that, that to me is beneficial, but that's beneficial from a point of view of having a camera in the stadium rather than just having a cam by a corner flag that's probably going to be practically useless. And I'm sure Fox is going to play that up during the game. We're like, hey, look at, look at this. Isn't this great? What can we see? And it's really going to evolve into, into nothing. But, um, all right, Kartik, the, the one last item before we move on to the next segment, and that is that uh, both NBC Sports and Turner Sports are investing in the game. And sending the crews out into the field, and uh, the first up is NBC on uh, Saturday. They're they're taking their Premier League morning show to Manhattan this Saturday for the NYC uh, Fan Fest 2018. So they'll have all of their talent uh, broadcasting from uh, New York, from Manhattan, uh, to fans across the United States. And then next week we've got uh, Stu Holden and Steve Nash heading to Barcelona to call the Barcelona Spurs game on Tuesday. So they're going to do pre-match, post-match, as well as halftime and commentary from Camp Nou in Barcelona. So that'll be great to watch. And I think on Wednesday, too, they're going to have some... They're not going to be commentating the games, but they will have some on-site analysis and feedback. So it's good to see that these guys are investing and sending the crews out to Europe. It's a good sign. Now, Kartik, let's move on to TV ratings. We don't have all of the numbers in yet, but uh, we will have them soon at worldsoccertalk.com. And quite a few numbers to look at, Kartik. Anything here that uh, jumps out out at you as uh, notable? Yeah, I just, uh, I'm a little disappointed that Southampton Man United was only uh, 863,000. Maybe it was because it was going up against college football championship games and Southampton is not very good, uh, although that might change with their managerial appointment. Hudson is a is a very good manager from what I watched at Leipzig the last uh, few years, uh, but uh, you know, he can only do so much with the players he has, maybe. But uh, that was only eight hundred sixty three thousand, and I thought that was uh, a, a broadcast. Now that the bulk of college football is over, and you only have uh, the cha- those championship games, which don't interest everybody, uh, going up against a Man United game, we might get closer to a million. Uh, but we did it. And then the MLS Cup playoffs, again, um, underwhelming numbers. Uh, I, I was uh, disappointed by it, but we'll see what happens on uh, Big Fox this weekend. I think it'll be poised for a big number between Fox and, and Univision, maybe upwards of, of, of $2 million. Let's see, $1.5 million, something like that. Uh, uh, but the numbers weren't particularly good uh, for, for, for anything. Uh, one, one standout for me was that uh, given how early the match started, I thought that the Arsenal Spurs number at uh, close to 500,000 on uh, on NBA, on VCSN was 
was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of the uh, Champions League numbers too that came out from last week, that was the Spurs against Inter game on TNT on the Wednesday, and that was 215,000 people tuning into that. And then the day before on the Tuesday was uh, AS Roma against Real Madrid. That one had 198,000 viewers on TNT. And uh, the Univision numbers we'll have um, in this uh, report on worldsoccertalk.com in the next 24 hours. Next up, we have an interview with the president of Univision Deportes, which is Juan Carlos Rodriguez. Out of all of the soccer-related networks in the United States, Univision is the one that has the most number of fans tuning in to watch games week in, week out, thanks to their coverage of Liga MX. But in the past 12 months, they've expanded their coverage to include the Champions League, Europa League, Bundesliga, and UEFA Nations League, among others. I had the chance to speak with Juan Carlos this week to learn more about their expansion into European soccer and to get his take on the Liga MX Apertura semifinals that are set to bring in huge TV ratings this week. All right, Juan Carlos, so let's dive right in. And uh, let me first ask you, what are your thoughts so far on how the UEFA Champions League has been doing on uh, Univision Deportes? So first of all, thank you for inviting us to your podcast. I think we have done a pretty good job. There's still a lot of things to do. We're getting into the eighth game week. And this is the first stage. Then we'll go to the knockout stage. So far, so good. I would. The, we, we've been lucky enough to have the first eight most rated uh, first leg games ever in the history of UEFA. So we are very proud of that. On the other hand, we still have to do a lot of work on the promotional side to keep bringing UEFA champions to the forward market. But we are very enthusiastic. So, so how much of a difference is it making to Univision by having a, br- a brand new time window for soccer uh, on Univision and, and a lot of the Univision channels um, during a mid-afternoon on Wednesday when typically in the past there wasn't uh, any soccer coverage at that time? We've been lucky enough to bring new viewers that regularly do not watch uh, our regular ongoing Univision part. On the other hand, on the sports side, we have been able to complement what we were missing, and that was the main purpose of bringing European Cups here, is to have a build-up of our foundation of an everyday rating. So by having UEFA and Europa and all of the Euros, we're we're building every day a stronger and more robust proposal for our primetime every day. So we're very happy about it. Do you have a sense that it's actually bringing in, say, soccer fans into, really kind of bringing new clubs into into their landscape, for, for lack of a better expression? But but for soccer fans who have grown up, maybe the Club America fans, maybe the Chivas fans, and now all of a sudden in Spanish language, you mean weekdays? I mean, you got you know, Barcelona, Real Madrid, uh, Liverpool, PSG. I mean. You know, uh, Ike Athens. I mean, there's so many teams and so many different stories. Do you think, in a way, it's actually helping those those clubs uh, grow in popularity in the United States by introducing these teams to an audience that may not have, yeah, Real Madrid and Barcelona, yes, but but may not have watched as much of uh, European soccer in the past. So, so I think it's a whole ecosystem. The ecosystem brings new viewers to our networks. 
it also brings uh, more appealing teams as a proposal to, to the viewers. On the other hand, it also brings not only Spanish speakers to our, to our broadcasts, but we're also having a lot of Anglos coming because of the proposal that we're making. So I think it's a smart ecosystem that is working. We're, we're uh, as of today, we're very proud of it. Have you had any pushback from the viewers who would watch uh, the normal programming that would be on on, on weekday afternoons on, on, on Univision, kind of the over-the-air channel, that uh, an hour kind of soccer is being, being played at, at that time instead of whatever programming they were watching in the past? Yes. Yes, uh, yes. And it would be fair to say that our friends from entertainment have done an incredible job partnering with us. The good news from a business perspective is that from a CPM perspective and from a holistic approach, we're bringing new clients and new money that were not in our networks. So the answer is yes, we have had some pushback and we're trying to find smarter ways of, of programming every day. As you know, media and broadcasters, we're being challenged every day. And this is part of a new, it's a new piece to the puzzle. But our friends from entertainment and news have been very helpful. Now, next week, uh, TNT Turner Sports is sending, um, I think, two announcers, uh, Stu Holden and Steve Nash, to call the game from Barcelona. Are, are there any plans to send uh, Univision talent to Europe in the future to call games from the stadiums uh, for the, cha- the UEFA Champions League? Yes, we, we, have, we have forecasted that the final legs, semifinals and finals, will be broadcasted from stadiums outside. And we will produce in all week programming those two weeks so that so that we can cover in depth from from sites. So okay. the answer is yes. Excellent. Now, now, now TNT has gone for a model of trying to push as many people to BR Live as possible and, and showing as few games as possible on television. Univision, on the other uh, side, has, got, has taken the opposite approach where your, your business model seems to be more, more so focused on the, the, the linear, the, the television, uh, broadcasting as many games as possible through your uh, array of different channels and then also, of course, having um, all the games available through, through digital too. Which do you, do you feel? Which business model do you feel is is the uh, the better monetization uh, model? I would say both are very good. Short term hours, it's more uh, monetizable. Even though we have a huge amount of coverage on the digital side, due to the specific weight of the main networks, it doesn't feel like. But the, on a digital basis, we have we cover everything there is. On UEFA, on the VR model, I think it's a very smart model for them because they are testing the markets with a new sport for them. So I think that both of the proposals are being smart, and it only changes depending on what the company is aiming for, whether it's long term or short term. But they are both very smart. So, do you have any any anecdotes anecdotes or any research to show that um, maybe there's been a lot of English language soccer fans who have tried to tune into, for example, Liverpool against PSG, couldn't find it, uh, and are now watching the games on Univision, which is, I mean, the, t- the games are a lot more accessible there uh, through television. And, and any uh, any stories or any kind of research to show that um, if you if you've been able to attract some of the English language audience to your Spanish language games, we have we have we have clear data that shows that our Anglo viewers have grown in a big way hasn't gone the ten, uh, past the 
but we are in an incredible growth area over there because accessibility is part of the name of the game. So that's what it's been helping us. So we are way more accessible at this time than we are. So as you said, we're getting more Anglo viewers every day, every game. Mm-hmm. Now, Juan Carlos, uh, I know you're a huge soccer fan, but uh, has the Champions League in any way opened the eyes of people within your company or uh, for advertisers or sponsors um, to the kind of potential of broadcasting more European soccer in Spanish, uh, whether it's club soccer or, or whether it's uh, international soccer, such as UEFA Nations League, etc.? Um, is there a possibility in the future that um, Univision might be more interested in acqui- trying to acquire uh, European soccer rights uh, for Spanish language? So I'll tell you the genesis of this, and I'll tell you the, the outcome so far of this. The genesis is we needed relevant programming in midweeks in, during daytime. That's how we came to, to buy these properties. We also acquired Nations League, the European Nations League, all qualifiers on the Euro. So we, are, we, are, we have a very robust proposal until the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. So on that end, we will be fully covered on, on European soccer. From a business perspective, yes, if there is an incredible appeal to these teams and to these nation, national teams. So, so new advertisers, and, and there has been a lot of I would say, internal whispering on how good this has gone, because for us, it was like a statement of the love of soccer that we all have as the ultimate home of soccer to to America. But internally, people were eh, hesitating whether this would work or not. And it has proven that it worked. so, So we're very happy both internally and externally. That's great news. Uh, one more question about the, the Champions League before we move on to talking about uh, Liga Mekis is that um, has there been, in many ways, I mean, the Champions League brings in an audience that then you can actually go ahead and try to promote or your coverage of Liga Mekis and vice versa. For the fans who are watching Liga Mekis, you can be promoting some of the, the Champions League games coming up in, in the future. Have you, have you seen that kind of cross-pollination working in terms of uh, trying to basically can make, make soccer fans who kind of maybe are stuck in the, maybe they, they just like Liga Mekis and, and that's it, to trying to attract them to uh, Ch- Champions League and vice versa the other way around? Yes, yes, and it's been very interesting. However, it's too soon in the process mm-hmm. because we believe, and we cannot prove it, that everybody has two teams, their national team and the local team. And then when it turns into a big uh, soccer fan, they all love European, or we all love one or two European teams. So, so what's happening is that for a guy who is normally a big fan of the Mexican national team and of Chivas, finding out that he could see Chicharito or he could see, I don't know, Real Madrid, or they could see an Italian team in which all the time they're talking about hiring Mexicans, it starts creating a socialization mood that we haven't had in the past. So it's been very, very exciting. The results are not there yet, even though the trend is going there. Once we start with the knockout stages in the early next year, we'll see the numbers incredibly grow. And we'll be, we'll be talking about this, you and I, in the next, I would say, six months after the final game of the, of the Champions League. 
because we honestly believe that the growth is going to be there. Right, and we've seen that too, just even during the last 12 months as far as uh, Univision's um, TV ratings and uh, viewing figures. Uh, just the, the whole Spanish-language side of soccer seems to be uh, booming. It's, it's, it seems to be uh, great ratings. There's a lot of people t- uh, tuning in to watch games. Uh, on the English-language side, it's, it's difficult because a lot of it's kind of uh, led by the U.S. men's national team, and if the U.S. men's national team isn't doing as well, uh, sometimes that uh, I mean, fans get kind of... Uh, disillusioned and it may not uh, be into soccer as much in, in, in the past but uh, yeah def- definitely without a doubt it seems to, to be that uh, Spanish language soccer TV ratings in particular and, and just the industry uh, seems to be on, a, on an upward rise w- would you agree with that? Well we're with the, with the ability to host in 2026 the World Cup I think this is like the last long term call for soccer to grow. We've been hearing for the last 40 years that soccer was going to be the next thing in sports. Now I strongly believe that the planets are aligning to become the next uh, the next sport in, in the U.S. I believe that it's going to overpass in, in, in fan-based hockey. It's going to seriously uh, go against baseball. And hopefully by 2026, soccer will be the second or third sport in the U.S. on a very serious basis. The MLS has done an incredible job. U.S. soccer is now getting all its stuff together and getting ready to roll. Uh, Liga MX has helped. All other leagues are now uh, able to be seen in, in the U.S. I don't know if you're aware, but there are 27 networks that broadcast soccer in the U.S. Wow. So it's the most fragmented, but also has... The most amount of, of games there are in the in the industry, so there are many things that are aligning, and I believe that's going to incredibly help the growth of the sport. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Now, now, looking ahead to the uh, Liga MX uh, Apertura semifinals, we've got uh, Club America against Pumas and uh, Cruz Azul uh, versus Monterrey. What can fans expect from yes. these uh, these matchups? So, for the first time in many, many years, we have three of the most famous teams, three out of the four most famous teams in Mexico playing playing semifinals, with Monterrey being a very followed team as well. So, I believe that the viewership is going to be huge. Uh, the expectation is huge between the rivalries between America, Cruz Azul, and Pumas. They're all from the same city, Mexico City. So, it's the, it, it is, there is all the ingredients to make it a very appealing semifinals. So viewership is going to be over the roof, I believe. Now, many of our listeners uh, love watching soccer from around the world, whether it's from Europe, uh, North America, I mean, you name it, uh, they watch it from uh, around the world. But some of them may not have watched uh, Liga MX yet or ha- haven't given it a chance yet. But with these semifinals coming up and, and of course, uh, the, fi- the final two, um, what for you are some of the major reasons why English language listeners should uh, give these games a chance and watch them on Univision Deportes? So first and foremost, it is prime time. So if you don't want to be caught in something that is like the same all the time in, in entertainment, and if you love soccer, this is played on prime time live. So that's a big appeal. Number two, I think that the league itself is, in my head, it's ranked between the 6th and the 10th league, most relevant league in the world. 
So when you add the combination of prime, prime crime and high-quality soccer, this could definitely be an opportunity. And in our case, we have invested tons of money on the on-air experience from a technology perspective and on our talent to make it as appealing and colorful to welcome everyone. So, so we would love to, to have new viewers that come and experience a very, a very appealing proposition that we have set up in place. And uh, two final questions, uh, Juan Carlos. First question is um, the impact of Chivas. I mean, Chivas uh, definitely not doing as well um, on the field and, uh, of course, ha- have a large fan base in the United States. How much of an impact that has? But, but, but then the, se- the second part of that question is uh, in regards to, to the talent that Univision Deportes has and some of the, the, the names and uh, commentators and announcers and uh, studio talent that we can expect to see uh, in this uh, Liga MX uh, Apertura semifinals and, and final coming up uh, in the next week or so. So as an American fan, as an American fan, I don't like Chivas. I have to start by saying that. So I, I'm biased on this answer. Sure. <laughs> on, on, on the Chivas, from the business perspective, yes, Chivas is by far, uh, with America, one of the two most relevant teams and most famous teams. So we miss them. From a business perspective, we would love to have them on the, on the final stages. That would have been an incredible opportunity to see the most famous teams playing for the first time, I believe, in 20-something years. So, so we definitely miss Chivas, number one. Number two, from a talent basis, we're going to go with our finest lineup from El Perro Bermudez and Luis Omar to Diego with the new addition of Marc Rosas, uh, Ivan Zamorano, Christo Stoichkov. We're going with all of our uh, premier team to do all these uh, next, I would say, five games. Yes, five games, because we'll have three out of the four games of the semifinals and hopefully the two the final legs of the of the tournament. And then the last question is, uh, do you have any uh, thoughts about who you want to see in the final? Yes, I want to see America winning. I would love to see it playing versus Cruz Azul, which is a big rival. And if they two get to the finals, it's going to be one of the best finals we have had in, in many, many years. If Pumas gets to the final, it's going to be also a very good uh, national ambience finals. Uh, hopefully, Cruz Azul and America will end up in the final games. Excellent. All right. Well, we're looking forward to watching those games on uh, Univision Deportes. And Juan Carlos, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, you, you're taking time to, to speak to our listeners and to give an, an update on both the UEFA Champions League uh, as well as, of course, uh, Liga MX and, and all of the other soccer properties that uh, Univision has. So thank you for, for everything. Appreciate it. As I told you before, it is a pleasure to talk with you and, and thank you for following us and amplifying our message because I forgot to say that you're also one of the good guys that are helping to, to grow the sport in the U.S. So we collectively are going to end up helping the growth of the sport. So thank you for that. Excellent. Yeah, thank you, Juan Carlos. Now moving on, Kartik, to listener mailbag. Uh, first up is JP. JP says... Kartik has a very rigid view of what it means to be a fan of a club. The fact is, 
The majority of U.S. fans in any sport only follow their club through television and social media rather than actually going to the games live. Is someone living in the New York, New Jersey area who hasn't gone to a Giants game in five years still allowed to call themselves a true supporter under Kartik's criteria? I'll grant him that overseas fans of a club don't share the same connection as those who live in the local area. But in these days, they probably follow just as closely as most of these locals, save for the minority who attend more than one match um, a year or, or two. With that said, I also disagree with the practice of having games played in other countries, whether it be La Liga, NFL, NBA, NHL, etc. Any uh, takes on that, Kartik? Yeah, I actually tend to agree with him. I think part of my issue is that they have a lot of fans in this country that don't know that there are local soccer options in their market. And they only know that there's local soccer. They call themselves big soccer fans, but they don't check out um, the local matches uh, if it's not MLS, right? If it's MLS, they're aware there's a team. So for let's take Atlanta, obviously Atlanta United has done brilliant things. They've got 70,000 people coming to these games, but They have had lots of local soccer in the Atlanta area for years and professional soccer. They've had a professional soccer team with the exception of a couple of gaps here and there going back to the mid 90s. Um, And uh, some good players have come through there, some players that you might be familiar with um, uh, or our listeners might be familiar with. But there's never been there are so many people who say, oh, well, we just got professional soccer uh, now. So they are only aspiring to a certain level of soccer, which means if they were in England and they were. Uh, plopped in Gillingham or uh, uh, Gillingham, or they were they, they were they were put in uh, in Bury. They would not support those clubs, right? They would support someone else. They, if they're in Bury, they would say, "Hey, I'm a Man City fan or a Man United fan," even though they have their own local club. Uh, though, although those obviously Bury is in Greater Manchester, but just using that as an example. So that's what I was trying to get at. Is I think that there are a lot of lot of people in this country that don't know that there are local soccer options and they call themselves soccer fans and they might even gravitate to local soccer once MLS arrives, but they don't do so beforehand. Yeah, this is a topic that I I had uh, lots of thoughts on after we did the podcast, just all weekend kind of thinking about it and thinking about about it some more because it is a big topic and it's a very important topic and I'm glad we covered it in last week's episode and we had the the feedback from the listeners and we got some more for this episode too. To me, Carter, it's a little bit of, of of a thing in the US too where if if somebody opposes MLS as a system in terms of a closed league system and then says, okay, you know what, I'm just going to support a local club. There's a lot of jeopardy with that. And I think back to, to, to myself, I mean, I was first a well Swansea City fan when I grew up in Wales and have been ever since. But when I moved to the States, I became a Strikers fan. I was watching the Strikers through the ASL, the APSL. Uh, eventually, they went out, went out of business. They went defunct. Um, kind of in that stage of, of the club. Then I became a Miami Fusion fan and became a season ticket holder, a fusionado, uh, really, really, I mean, got, got engaged on the pitch uh, during a Fusion game, really fell in love with that club. They went defunct. And, and there's, I mean, that's just, I mean, a couple of examples. You can look nationwide. There's, there's so many clubs that have gone out of business. And I think in some ways for the local fan, there's a risk involved in, in supporting your local club. Yes, you want to support them so they, they can go on and, and, and survive and not go defunct. But the system as it's in place doesn't encourage local clubs to thrive. You mean because of the closed league system. So they'll never reach the pinnacle that, say, an MLS club has with the power and the money that they have. Um, so in some ways, the safer bet for a lot of local fans is to support a club that's had a, a rich history overseas that's probably not going to go out of business. 
Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a lot of excitement now about USL's expansion. History tells us a lot of these clubs that are outside the MLS ecosystem, a lot of them go out of business. So the clubs might be doing well. And a lot, there are clubs that have done incredibly well attendance-wise and, and in terms of local marketing uh, in year one or two that are in the lower divisions that go out of business. So I do understand that, and I've been through that. I've, I've been through the same uh, rigmarole as you with local clubs in South Florida. So I, I understand that and respect that point of view, but I also um, am addressing this largely to newer soccer fans who become Premier League fans or La Liga fans or whatever from watching um, – Real Madrid and Barcelona are watching the Premier League on NBC, uh, live in Boston or live in Omaha, Nebraska, or live in wherever, and don't even know that there's local soccer, and then have some degree of contempt and say, well, as are Americans playing, they couldn't be very good, right? Or American coaches, whatever. Uh, go check out uh, a local game, and, and you might enjoy it, and you might learn a lot about the sport and, and, and appreciate some of the struggles uh, uh, aspiring players and, and, and coaches go through a little more. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree completely. Uh, Jose Rodriguez says, I'm a Grimsby, Grimsby Town fan because of the playoff match where they got promoted to League Two. I did a lot of research and found out how big of a following they have for a lower league club. Prior to this, I had never heard of them. I purchased their all, I follow streaming service too. Uh, Jason says, I like Man City because when I first started watching English football in the late 1990s, they were a third division team. That I always liked the underdogs doing well, and I hated Man United. I also liked cities like Blue Kit, and I saw them in person in Baltimore a few years back. Still cheer for the underdog teams, such as when Leicester won the Premier League, and I always cheer for lower division teams in the cup competitions. But among the big teams in 2018, City is my favorite of the bunch. Yeah, I can relate to that because uh, those are some of the, the, the reasons why I stuck with City was being uh, the third division. I remember going to watch the uh, the playoff match uh, against uh, the aforementioned uh, 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 Gillingham uh, in, in uh, 1999 and uh, the, the light blue color and the fact that we weren't Man United. And it was kind of an underdog thing. It was always an underdog thing at that point. So I can definitely relate to that uh, and was obviously pleased when Leicester won the Premier League. Although now, I think in retrospect, I can't, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm going to say this for the first time publicly, Chris. I think in retrospect, what would have happened if Spurs had won the league instead? Maybe it would have made the league in general more competitive and more compelling down the road. The Leicester story was incredible. I'm glad they won the league, but I've just thought a little bit of revisionism recently. What if Spurs had actually won the league because they've been knocking on the door so much that would may have opened the league up more long term? Who knows? Long term. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Ken Mendonca says, uh, just listen to the latest Will Soccer Talk podcast. I love Kartik's defense of uh, local soccer. My Himishi FC will always be worth my support, and I won't stop telling those around me about a team they can be a part of. Ritik uh, says, uh, hi, guys. Uh, thanks for reading my comments, and it was great to listen to the, de- the uh, debate. I do sympathize with Kartik's views on the issue of La Liga matches abroad. Clubs should put local fans first, but nowadays they don't. Unfortunately, soccer has simply become a globalized sport, and it's in- inevitable that clubs will play matches abroad. While that hurts the European fans, the lifeblood of their clubs, it benefits us soccer fans in the States who want to see the best product that is La Liga, and I would gladly take the opportunity opportunity to take uh, to watch a Valencia game in my area. I do agree that we should always support our local clubs that we have connections to first, and luckily for me, it's DC United. 
Joshua Miller says, uh, I just listened, listened to your podcast uh, from last week about La Liga. Your section before the interview was the best uh, bit I have heard from you guys since I started listening this summer. And it was great hearing some disagreement and discussion from you both. Personally, the analysis about TV channels and viewer numbers bores me to death. Uh, more talk about individual games and players would be much more interesting. I get tired of hearing how terrible MLS is and uh, the different channels are, especially since I cut my cable and I do not keep track of MLS much. The only time I watch MLS is when it goes live on Twitter, and then the live chat feature makes up for the tremendously terrible announcers, although I will probably watch the MLS Cup this weekend. Are you going to do more talk about games and players in the future? I also like to comment on capitalism taking over soccer. Don't these people realize that developing love of the sport is much more effective and will ironically be given... Will be even more profitable in the long run. I know, Mike. I know that more kids that play soccer than any other sport. But when they grow up, they rarely keep playing or even become a soccer fan. The U.S. is doing something wrong. Have a good week. Now, Joshua. Just uh, in terms of talking about players and and kind of teams, we do we do from time to time. Definitely, we, we kind of uh, talk sometimes uh, more in depth about that. But the podcast really is more focused on the media business, and, and there's probably a hundred different podcasts out there that talk about the players uh, incessantly. But if something interesting pops up, we will certainly discuss it. And then uh, Jason Ryder says, Kartik, hello there. I've got a question for the podcast. Why do you think that Sheikh Mansour and his group decided to buy Man City out of all of the teams in the English League? Do you think back in 2008, if they had decided to buy a team like Fulham, Stoke or Reading, instead that they would be in the position that Man City is in now as the top team in the country? There, there were two reasons, uh, Jason. Thanks, thanks for the question. Uh, one was because Manchester uh, is... Uh, the the second largest um, uh, uh, it, it, actually in terms of population the West Midlands area has the second largest population but it was the only it, it's the second city in the sense of a lot of businesses it is kind of the quote capital of the north and it only had at that point one club that was very successful in Manchester United uh, and Manchester City had a rabid supporters base that's uh, that's part one part two is because it had a stadium paid for by the Manchester City Council, similar to the West Ham situation with uh, Olympic Stadium uh, that was built for the Commonwealth Games that was already built and paid for, that had been subsidized by taxpayers, which is a, a thing that a practice that uh, I think all, all around the world we need to get away from. And we're beginning to get away from it here in the United States after uh, the boondoggle of Marlins Park, <laughs> where Chris and I recently yep. visited. That really was the tipping point in this country. And I think in the UK, the tipping point is, is, is the West Ham situation. But um, that's why, because the Manchester, uh, the council in Manchester had, had paid for that stadium for the Commonwealth Games. They had, uh, David Bernstein, who was the chairman of Manchester City, had been very instrumental in, in using his political influence to get that done, get it converted to a football stadium a year later. Uh, and Manchester City moved in in 2003, a year after the Commonwealth Games. And... Um, that that stadium was there. So I think that was the deciding factor. But I do think the temptation of going into Manchester was uh, was very, very uh, important. Now, um, the other possibilities of clubs to buy would have been less likely than Fulham, Stoke or Reading would have been Newcastle, uh, Everton or Liverpool. Um, And the decision, I think Manchester City ended up winning out over those clubs. Uh, Mike Ashley bought Newcastle just before Sheikh Mansour bought um, bought uh, Manchester City. So keep that in mind also. Wasn't so it could, it could have been Newcastle, potentially. 
Wasn't it um, Roman Abramovich that was looking at Newcastle or Chelsea and, and then decided to go with Chelsea? Uh, uh, for Roman, yes, correct. And the reason, the, the, the legend behind that, Chris, is that uh, he took a helicopter ride over Stamford Bridge and said, yeah, you know, I like that better than, than St. James Park. I don't know if that's true, but that's the, that's the urban legend that's persisted now for 15 years. Yep, that makes sense. All right, and then last item is from Anthony Bello. He says, hi, guys. I would like to add some facts backing up my points on the MLS playoffs I made uh, this past week. To date, MLS has played 49 knockout matches that weren't at neutral sites. Of those 49 matches, the home team uh, has won 31 of those. That equals the home team winning 63% of the time. Also to date, MLS has played 74 two-legged series. Only 40 higher seeds have, have advanced to the next round. That equals 54% advancing. So if you take the percentages, one leg may be better for higher seeds. I know this may sound against uh, conventional wisdom, but maybe if MLS wants to make the regular season more meaningful, the league may want to put an emphasis on home field advantage in the playoff because of those numbers. Those are interesting stats, Kartik. So it does show that, you mean, if, if MLS is going to, as, as proposed, uh, move more to kind of single elimination knockout games rather than two leg games during the playoff stages that uh, home field advantage is 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 massive um, in these types of games yeah and this has been a complaint uh, for for a number of years Jesse Marsh uh, who I mentioned at the top of the podcast uh, would have been Perhaps my choice for the U.S. men's national team job, he probably would have been if I were conducting the search. Uh, he complained a few years ago. Red Bulls kept winning the Supporters' Shield. They kept winning the Eastern Conference. And uh, that basically it became very random and a crapshoot. He, he said, maybe I should finish sixth next year. Maybe I should just blow off the regular season. I think these are some of the reasons he wasn't considered for the U.S. job, by the way, Chris. He said, he said eh, maybe I should blow off the regular season, finish sixth, and then have the, all the first legs at home. And then he also made comments about promotion and relegation, et cetera. Made him very unpopular with right. the top brass. Uh, so that's probably a big reason why he didn't get interviewed. But he had mentioned that. That basically I, every year with my Red Bull side, I'm forced to go away from home. We are the higher seed. We're either first or second in the East every single year. We saw it again this year with them, although he's left and got the Leipzig. Um, and we lose because we lose that first leg. So um, I think Anthony's point is well taken. And the single elimination uh, so, uh, one-off matches, I guess, would put more emphasis on the regular season and, and having that match at home. Mm-hmm. Um but that's that's again for top seeds. Now, wh- wh- what's the uh, what's the pressure on for teams near the bottom of the table? That's the question, and that, that that's never changed. Right. Nothing. Right. Nothing. All right, guys. Well, we love getting your feedback, and we love getting uh, your responses, advice, questions about advice, uh, rants, raves, uh, disagreements, agreements, you name it. And we love to read those out on air. So you can always reach us through email at web at worldsoccertalk.com as well as facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk and on twitter at worldsoccertalk plus of course you can always post your comments on the website worldsoccertalk.com so Kartik uh, it's a crazy end of the week we've got a lot of big games coming up we've got the MLS Cup final on Saturday we've got the River Boca Copa Libertadores second leg hopefully final on Sunday as well as, of course, tons of league games. We've got uh, Chelsea Man City this weekend, too. Uh, lots to look forward to, as well as the Premier League Fan Fest. And then next week, we've got the Champions League coming back. So a lot of stuff to listen to, a lot of, a lot of stuff to look forward to. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it next week. In the meantime, what should soccer fans do? Enjoy your football. <laughs> <laughs>